Hello, friend. You are listening to Down the Yellow Brick Pod, an all things Wizard of Oz podcast that will take you over the rainbow and down a yellow brick rabbit hole as we pull back the curtain on American culture's most visited fairyland. We are your hosts, Tara and MK, the royal revisionists of Oz and roommates in Queens, New York here to preserve the rustic emeralds of yesteryear and reimagine an Oz for today and future generations. This season, we will be deep diving with the melodies of the many musical adaptations of L. Frank Baum's original Oz book, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, taking up residency in the 1939 classic MGM film, as well as the 70s super soul hit, The Wiz. Visit our Insta at Down the Yellow Brick Pod for an accompanying scrapbook and fave space to connect, as well as our Patreon community where we continue the escapism and entertainment with Tiny Oz concerts, acoustic coffee shop covers and mashups, not sponsored by NPR, and other good witchy perks for each Patreon tier. Our Patreons are truly our MVPs. Consider joining our Oz fam today, it would truly make our day. May the world of Oz continue to be a bewitching escape in bewildering years, nostalgic and nuanced, and a magical refuge where two gals and queens can cross yellow brick roads with wonders like you. Directors. Ah! This is where it gets real <laughs> dicey. Dicey McDicerson. <laughs> So let's go through the four directors. As we talked about, only one is credited. His yes. name is Victor, Victor Fleming. Fleming. Also the director of Gone with the Wind. Whole yeah. other thing there. <laughs> but first we have Richard Thorpe. Uh-huh. He was the first one at two weeks. Two weeks. George Cooker Cucker. Cooker. <laughs> George Cooker. 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 Three days. Victor Fleming. Four months. King Vider. 10 days. What a... What? Okay, can we talk what? now about what it was like being a director just to set oh the gosh. scene? So now yes. Schrader and Tagliaferro are thinking about becoming We're directors, directors now. We're okay. on our artistic journey. So here's the deal, though. You yeah. would not really want to work at MGM if you were an artistic visionary director who had... Who, like your thoughts and ideas. <laughs> yes, you had a brain. Like you had an imagination. <laughs> who had a soul. Yeah, like you wanted to have agency in what you were making because you were always under a foot at MGM yes, of the heads of the studio. Yes. Also, um, oh, there's so much. I mean, there's so much that's just going to keep rolling up and coming up when we yeah. talk about MGM and the control when it yes. comes to the actors as well. Yes. But same thing with the directors. If you did something to Louis B, LB, <gasps> or just like offended him How or dare. I don't know, disappointed him, whatever, he would send you off to Columbia as if it was like a wasteland. <laughs> you for your are ride. banished. So you would get um, loaned out to Columbia. Oh, that was no. punishment oh, no. to come back. So there was also these like weird tactics of loan outs and right. um probations, suspensions, all this stuff for just like maybe voicing something or having your own opinion that maybe wasn't the... um, What they thought it should be. Unpopular? The unpopular. 
opinion. Yes. Wow. Yeah, they were kept on a tight leash. They were well-fed and well-paid, but the control, I it would drive me away. Well, yeah, and a lot of directors um, did not like working at MGM. Were, and, like, you know, most of them were men at the time, too, so they did yeah. speak out about it a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, but they would go to other studios, like, we wa- we just watched Mank, and right. that was a big thing for Orson Welles to get to direct, star, and have all creative agency over That's Citizen huge. Kane. That wasn't happening in the studios yeah. at the time. Mm-mm. So just to give a little flavor for Tagliaferro and Trader, who would <laughs> struggle because we were women as well. So that would be another right. part of our struggle. Right, right. In the 1930s, trying to direct. Yeah. But let's talk about the director that never was, the rumor mill director. Rumor mill director. Norman. Tarog. Tarog. He was the child actor whisperer. Ooh. Yeah, he was really good with kids. In now I'm looking at the 75th anniversary Yay! book. This is by Jay Scarfone. So good. And William Stillman. Um, I love this book. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's fun. It's beautiful. Um, and here it says Norman Targ, known for coaching child actors into stellar performances, was the first director announced in industry trade publications hmm. to Meg... The Wizard of Oz, Meg um, being a 1930s showbiz slang for the megaphone used by directors to give instructions on set. (laughs) I want to Meg a lot of movies. Before filming (laughs) began in mid-October, though, however, Tarog Tarog, was replaced by Richard Thorpe, Mm -hmm. um, who we'll talk about more, had this reputation for just bringing in pictures on a schedule and within a budget. But this is also conflicting, I believe, with what is in the making of the Wizard of Oz book by Al Jean. Right. There apparently is no documentation. Right. She says about this. Maybe weird. this was found later, too. This could have been found later in research. She said there was no documentation of Norman ever being officially attached. Right. He probably was considered because of that reputation with making child actors stars. Right. They were like, he seems like an obvious choice. But you know what? He would meet up with Judy, like, a year later in Little Nellie Kelly. Fierce! And he would direct her in that. Thank so you. So they would get to clab down the line. So let's yeah. get to Richard Thorpsey. Richard Thorpsey. He didn't get in much, did he? <laughs> he got in a few things. Like, he got in the Scarecrow scene, Wicked Witch Castle scenes. Um, and this, it all went south with the apple trees. That's Yikes. when he was let go. He was dismissed because... Leroy was dissatisfied with what he saw from the raw footage, and the only salvageable footage that exists from Thorpe is little Toto escaping the witch's castle. That's a great moment. So that's all that is from his um, days on set. I love this quote by from Al Jean. By 1976, Mervyn <laughs> Leroy could not remember why he chose Richard Thorpe to direct the, the Wizard of Oz, nor does Thorpe know why he was chosen. I guess what <laughs> that sums it up, doesn't it? Why am I here? And so he was there 12 days? Two weeks, yeah. He was fired. And this is also when Buddy Epson was still involved in the mm-hmm. picture, so that whole Quite thing is happening, on. too. So just a lot of changeover in that time. And this is, we'll talk about this in a little bit, the blonde wig for Dorothy to resemble yeah. more of the George R. Neal's Dorothy from the later Oz books was in place. Mm-hmm. So it was also a very different feel. So this is why um, Kakor, Kuku, <laughs> what's his name? I think it's George Kukor. George Kukor. I could be wrong. He was like a temp, you know? 
He got yeah. hired as a temp. Yeah. I'm calling him the cleanup crew. <laughs> I love that. I love that they have little <laughs> names. So cleanup he, crew is here. Yeah. He helped revise the actors' deliveries. He was like, no, to certain makeup designs, and please try that. Um, he done. He had done a lot of stuff. Oh my yes. gosh. Yes, he's a he's a big to do guy. He also yeah. was involved with Gone with the Wind. He Gone had with the Wind. to mm-hmm. he had to go back to Terra, you know, to the land of the, Terra. The, the, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So he had to go back, so that's why he was only there for a couple of days. Algene says he was known as a woman's director. All right, Algene. <laughs> what does that mean, Algene? Apparently, he would. Uh, Thalberg really trusted him with his wife Norma Shearer and Romeo and Juliet oh, and yes. Greta Garbo and Camille. Um, Norma Shearer had an affair with Mickey Rooney. Ew! Oh, oh gosh, who did it? Who did it? Why him? Who did no it? No shade, but you know who yeah. didn't? Judy. Judy sad. did not. She, she really wanted, wanted to. to, but he was like, "No." We're being gossips. Keep going. <laughs> we are spilling the tea. Um, so Cooker was asked, not told to do The Wizard of Oz by Mervyn Leroy. He says, "I wouldn't have dreamed of doing it. I was brought up on grander things. I was brought up on Tennyson." But he was a team player. And, I, yeah, I, I like what you said, cleanup crew. And yeah. this was sort of something directors were expected to do, just, like, sort of fix what was already there without maybe even receiving credit, which he did not receive credit. Did not receive any credit. Yeah. Well, then here comes in Victor Fleming. He Victor. is next. And there's a lot of belief that the reason he took this picture, because this isn't what he was known for. He was, like, a man's man, right? right. That's the energy I get from yeah. what, how they described yes. him. That he did this because he had just had a young daughter, mm. um, and this was a cinematic Valentine to children for him. Aww. Though, okay, that's cute. I have to say it now. Get tell it out of the way. Tell us. He is known oh, no. as being a Nazi sympathizer. That's not great. A lot of comments came started circulating from actors who'd worked with him, and not great. Yeah, not great. But he never was ever held accountable. If those things are true that he said, there was no accountability that came. But if you research him now, it's one of the first things yeah, that, that you'll would bring up. You'll find about him. So that's a little hard to he swallow. Seems like a like if I was alive during that time, I would have been intimidated by him. Yeah, we'll talk about Judy's crush on him, I'm sure, later Yikes. on. But you wanna hear something crazy? Tell us. Do you know this? What? He met Al Frank Baum. He knew him. What? For a brief no, I did not moment. know that. Thanks. What? Jay and William. Jay and William. They dug Wait, up this where? story. Okay, I'm going to tell you. Calm down. <laughs> I'm so... I I need to know this. Okay, it's really good. Okay. As sensational as it sounds, MK. It does sound sensational. It's not improbable <laughs> for the two men to have crossed paths. <gasps> Baum lived in Hollywood from 1910 what? until his death in 1919, Okay. So Fleming would have been in his 20s, and he was also the protege of director Alan Dwan at the time. Mm. That Baum was active with his Oz film manufacturing company from 1913 to 1915. So this was a story that was planted among the reviews, the biographies, <gasps> and all these anecdotes that were being released in the campaign books. So it was, it was, it was written... That Fleming knew Baum years ago when the author lived in Hollywood. And Fleming is quoted saying, I was a youngster then, intensely interested in the show, in the show business. Literally, in in the the show show business. business. Naturally, when introduced to the author, my first remark was about his story and the stage show. 
Wizard of Oz musical extravaganza. Our favorites. Okay, so according to Fleming, Baum attributed The Wizard of Oz's musical's longevity to its inspired spark of originality. MGM's account concluded that the encounter between author and aspiring director left an impression. Mm. Throughout Fleming's career, he remembered Baum's stories, but he never dreamed that he would one day be chosen to direct one. I mean, that's so Hollywood. I love it, yeah. So yeah, that's an interesting little story. Who knows how true it was, but it was reported. So that was something that was out there. I love it. And he also was known for being a no-nonsense guy, gets gets things done on time. He also had developed child actors in films like Treasure Island and Captain Courageous, which... Sounds great. That sounds great. (laughs) I Um, love... Yeah, this one quote from Al Jean says that in his wedding, which he got married at age 50, like late in life, I I, I guess. Was Um, it his first wedding? Oh, in 1933, he had married for the first and only time. He had picked for his wife. A f- he had picked for his wife. <laughs> what kind of phrase is that? A 40-year-old married woman who had been his friend for at least 20 years. Interesting. What? Okay. People are fascinating. All right. People are fascinating. Algene says it was a strange marriage by any standards, an even stranger one for a man who had waited until he was 50 years old. But why? Because he married a forty-year-old woman who was closer to his age and not like a twenty-two-year-old. Why is it strange? Why is it strange, Algene? Algene, we question you a little bit. <laughs> but apparently, at his wedding, he told the justice of the peace to leave the love out of the ceremony. Oh, great! That sounds <laughs> so. There you go. That gives you an idea of who this man was. He also had experience with directing in Technicolor as well. That was something he brought to the That's table. That's a big deal. So he wasn't like confused, but. As stated, he did not have a great relationship with my girl, with my girl Natalie, the ringmaster Ugh. of rainbows. Ugh. Lame. Sad. So, as we mentioned, Miss Judy Garland had a schoolgirl crush oh, on him, and she is responsible for throwing him a farewell party in February when he left set to go do Gone with the Wind. Right. Did Same you- time. Did you hear about how they put on the wind blowers and blew him out no. in the party? Oh, that's as a funny. Joke. <laughs> gone with the wind. You're gone. He had a busy year. He Those had a really two busy year. Humongous movies. And then we bring in King Vider, and King he Vider. is really responsible for the Kansas preamble. Mm-hmm. And I want to just quote something of King Vider, and these men will certainly come back yeah, up as we break sure. down scene by scene by scene. But just for you to get an overview of this process, that Fleming is really the film. Like, he is the, pretty mm-hmm. much the crux of the film with mm-hmm. a little bit of uh, Kukor, I think, kind of framing where the actors were going to go with their roles. Mm. So he is kind of the on-scene acting coach work. That's what okay. I'm gathering from him and, like, yeah. style work. That you don't see happen on set that happens maybe in rehearsal land. Mm-hmm. And then we have King the Door, who did the, all the sepia-toned scenes. I think this quote of King Vider really sums up the complexities of being a director in the late 1930s under a studio mm-hmm. hold and grasp, okay? Mm-hmm. So when he got put on the film, this was kind of an interesting thing for him to just kind of mop up. The rest of Wizard of Oz, not quite what he did. He was a pretty well-known, established director. So Mm -hmm. just to get this kind of like little gig is pretty odd. But he says, I had a certain loyalty to MGM, but was also afraid of getting swallowed up by Mother MGM 
or by Papa Mayer. <laughs> this is the quote that got me. He was afraid of losing his identity in that nest. Afraid of losing his identity. Mm. Over and over, I fled. Every time my contract ended, I would leave. The other guys stayed so long, they got a pension. I never got one. So it's like the stability stuff he would lose for his wow. artistic oh, wow. thriving, for his artistic sense wow. to feel alive. Yeah. But he would lose the stuff that I think allows you to feel like, okay, I could breathe a little bit. Right. He would lose that. Right. Um, and I think that's just so interesting to... End with our directors on that note. Afraid of losing my identity in that nest. I support. I respect that a lot. He also apparently, like, these specific directors were kind of had their little niche, like, vehicles. Like, Victor Fleming would direct Clark Gable and Spencer Tracy a bunch. Um, Right. uh, Clarence Brown directed Greta Garbo. But King Vider apparently was never allowed near Garbo, nor Mashir, Joan Crawford. And he's quoted as saying, I was not the guy who was given the star vehicles. Perhaps because maybe he broke the rules a little more? Yeah. He feels like an outsider insider. I like, I feel like I would like him. He's that guy in high school that sits at all the cafeteria tables, <laughs> but also feels a little bit ostracized by it. Right. Because he doesn't really have a table that he can really identify with. But he is also building his own kind of identity. Mm-hmm. I love how complicated he is. Yeah. Or my we'll vision. Or my interpretation What of we think of him. Yeah. yeah. Is that everyone? Casting call! Oh my gosh! No! Alright, so casting. 1938. MGM had under contract some 120 stars and featured players. So from those, as we mentioned last time, like, that was huge. You had your contract that you were loyal to, um, and you had to sort of be loaned out to the different studios if you wanted to be in different pictures. Yes. Um, From those 120 actors and actresses, six of the ten major roles in The Wizard of Oz were cast. And just to give us a sense, again, um, that, okay, I love this quote that's in Al Jean's book from an agent, George Chasson, George Chasson. Um, he called the studios these vast storage bins of talent. Uh-huh. But this also kind of scrapes out what we were just talking about. In the middle 30s, actors ran for security. Yeah. And the most prosperous studio studio was MGM. And that makes complete sense because yes. this is the Great Depression times. 100%. I think it just is so important to just keep reinforcing these things because there was a scarcity mindset that was running right. rampant at the we're time. We're in that depression. Yes. MGM's slogan was, more stars than there are in heaven. They're ridiculous. They're so they're so extra. I love it. And usually, um, how they would use those stars, uh-huh. um, they would create roles like almost like if it was a fitting of clothes. Like it would be tailored, tailored to specifically mm-hmm. to that person, mm-hmm. um, exaggerating the strong points and disguising flaws. So they knew everyone, what they were doing. Everyone Instagram. came off pristine. Yeah, and young younger actors and actresses were clay for molding. Yes, the grooming procedure. The grooming, the grooming process yeah. they had uh, from just plucking talent out of the, what they would just kind of say as the unknown. Right. <laughs> and they would sort of, like, put them in a film and see how audiences yes. reacted. Public and response was everything. And if they did not respond well, they were like, just kidding, you're done. Yeah, they would they would um, base everything off of these preview cards that people would fill out after they saw wow. Can you imagine? the movies in person. And then a fan mail also. Yeah. Added to that. They okay. were all about creating stars. Shall we get to the first and most coveted role? The first and most coveted role of 
Dorothy Gale. Oh my god! So here she comes, Judy Garland. She entered the MGM system as one of the 253 contract players at the time on September 27th, 1935, three months after her 13th birthday. Three months after She's her 13th 13. birthday. So Mayer had signed her and was sort of like her, he was he was molding the clay of Judy Garland. Can you talk about her contract? Just like oh that gosh. slow rise contract yeah. she was on because... Yeah. It's also, like, disgusting comparatively to all the other players yes. in this film. Yes. Okay. So, Judy was signed to a standard seven-year contract, 40-week guarantee with seven options. For the first six months, oh. she was she was to be paid $100 a week. And then if her first option was picked up in February 1936, she would be given $200 a week for the next six months. If at the end of that first year... They still wanted her at the studio. She would be paid $300 per week for the next year. Comes the fall of 1937, her salary would rise to $400 per week. Fall of 1938 to $500 per week. She just made it, and that's what she clocked in at for Wizard Wild. of Oz. $500 Wild. a week. By September 1939, she would be making $600 a week. In 1940, the summer after her 18th birthday, it would again be increased to $750. The last year of the contract, she would be earning $1,000 a week. I do what? think she did negotiate later down the line. She did get more money as she as her stardom grew, but that's right. an insane slow So rise. slow. You have to wait a long, long time. Okay. And also, here's where some of this controversy comes up, too, with her being cast in this right. role. Right, right. So... Mervyn and uh, Freed like to battle it out of who, who discovered, discovered her. Yeah, but right. he will stand by that Judy Garland was always the first choice, at least his first choice. But um, Nicholas Schenk, mm-hmm. who was president of MGM's parent company, Lowe's Incorporated, was pressing for Shirley Temple mm-hmm. because she was the nation's number one film favorite, big box office draw in 1938. And he really just wanted to have a star in the seat so they could recoup. Um, he could recoup his company's substantial investment. And there. this also notes the kind of gray area of, in 1935, there had been announcements of Shirley Temple possibly starring in a series of Wizard right. of Oz movies. But because Temple was under contract to 20th Century Fox, um, the only way she could get this movie was through a loan. Mm-hmm. But again, there's all these um, conflicting statements right. of what happened here. How that happened. Yes, how that happened. Yeah. But that is interesting to think about Shirley doing a series of Wizard of Oz. That would be crazy. Girl. So crazy. Wow. Also, um, Deanna Darvin. Deanna Darvin. She mm-hmm. was someone that they were considering. considering. She was like very well known at the yes. time doing a lot of their films. I have a Bachelor reference coming <gasps> in just a second. You know we love those. Oh my gosh. <laughs> but um, yeah, Deanna was rumored. Mm-hmm. But she, and then she um, left also, she's one of the few stars from MGM who got dropped, but also did well when after she got dropped, she went to Universal, and she was supposed to be in a Technicolor Cinderella that never happened, so she would have had kind of her version of Wizard of Oz, but it didn't, it didn't end up happening. Oh, wow. But here comes, here comes the Bachelor moment. Oh my gosh, stop! So I saw Chasing Rainbows, which is about Judy Garland's mm-hmm. life right before getting Wizard of Oz, and they actually feature a little bit of this history of their 
competition that was set ablaze by MGM. Mm -hmm. So this is something that reminded me of The Bachelorette a while back. I want to say Mm -hmm. this was maybe 2015, 2016. The Bachelorette did something (laughs) that I thought was so dirty. (gasps) They chose two Bachelorettes and they let the men decide who would get to be the actual Bachelorette. Who was that with again? Caitlin, I think. This oh, yeah, Caitlin Bristow and someone else. Someone else. I can't remember. I don't know. It's very faded. But I thought of that because that's what they did to Deanna oh, and Judy. Let me tell you a little bit about wow. what happened to them. So Durbin was lost to the studio by accident in 1936 after being paired with Garland in a short film every Sunday. This is the Bachelorette season for me. That was really a contest. Which girl should the studio keep? which would give evidence of that uh, magical rapport with an audience. Deanna Darbin's lean, long-legged prettiness convinced many of the executives who judged the film, although Judy's voice tilted the balance back to dead center. To the end of her life, Judy Garland would remember those early years when the wardrobe woman circled her, discussing her flaws between themselves, but never once speaking directly to her. Mm. So that's another part of this. Yeah. <sighs> It's so disgusting. It's a lot. But even that competition, they create it between these two young girls. So young. So, like, how are they, how are young women even going to trust one another in these environments? No, and you're so young. Like, I felt that in middle school, not let let alone being in this high powered movie making business, you know? Right. And Al Jean definitely makes it a point to point out like Judy's teeth and her waist and all of this stuff. I don't love, this is where I would love Al Jean to reconsider if she ever went back to republish this, how Mm -hmm. she speaks about Judy is horrifying to Mm -hmm. me. I mean, even just slight things of just like, Throwing in, oh, her figure was dumpy. And this is Al Jean speaking, not This is Al Jean. This is not a quote. This is the author. Her features are ordinary at best. And here's what I want to hold up as we can do better, girl. Mm -hmm. In signing Judy Garland, MGM had bought an extraordinary voice, unfortunately attached to a mediocre body and a badly flawed face. In the next seven years, the voice would be trained, the teeth capped, the nose restructured, the thick waist held in by corsets, and the body reshaped as well as possibly by diet and massage. Mm. This, I wrote in my margins, isn't this what's actually mediocre and badly flawed mm. is how we treat it, Judy? And how it's just sort of like, oh yeah, of course that had to be done for her of to course. become a star. That's the price she must pay. You know, and Judy believed this about herself. She was so young. And I just wrote Algene, no. No, Algene. <sighs> just breaks my heart. Um, I hate that that's a part. For Algene and yeah. for Judy. Yeah, like all It's of- such a part of her story. You know, you can't learn about Judy Garland's life without it being like, at the time, this was just what was expected of I know. her. And sort of like... I feel like Mr. Mayor, yeah, like Algene goes on to say, Mr. Mayor used to love to show his stars off, and he would always just like refer to, you know, here's Joan Crawford, we're having lunch, look how gorgeous she is. Um, and so it's just interesting the way she tells it is like Judy's voice was her main reason for being signed, and then they wanted to go back to that molding the clay idea. Because keep yeah. in mind, like Judy's voice was really, I mean, she was like the best singer there ever you know <laughs> of ever. all time 
Well, but, here, yeah. here's a quote from Mervyn Leroy. Let's bring another um, patriarchal voice into the conversation. Yay. Some of the producers at Metro wanted Shirley Temple, but I always wanted Judy Garland. On account of her voice, on account of her personality, she looked more like Dorothy than Shirley Temple did. I insisted we had to make a test of her, and she was sensational. I fixed all her teeth in front. She had big, wide spaces. That was the first thing I did with Judy Garland. And I wrote F you, Marvin. Right? <laughs> Come on, Marvin. In my mar- my margins. It's just it's, like Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot, but it's everywhere. And it's, it's not It's also like Freed. Yeah, we already mentioned like Freed. She worked with Freed in like 14 plus movies, and he was her star as well. So yeah. there's just like a lot of male interaction in her career. But one light story that I would love to <laughs> say share. is um, there's this story that Judy sang You Made Me Love You yes. to Clark Gable oh. for his birthday. Not so light since he was turning 36. Yeah. And uh, she was like 14. Yeah, not the lightest creepy. story. Um, cl- <laughs> Call and, him out the creep. <laughs> yeah, a little creepy. Clark, walk, uh, Clark Gable walked over and kissed her. Oh, okay. um, so it, I think it was like it's supposed to be a cute thing. It is what propelled her at the studio They were like, forward. Oh, her voice. I mean, she sounded so, so good. So good. She was so like used in all of these films afterwards she was hired in Andy Hardy movies thereafter we mentioned you know she was always like the girl next door in these films um yeah and we'll get more and more we'll into more Judy into yeah. as we go along too we'll give her a lot of we'll, we'll look at yeah we'll give her a lot of love yeah. and hold what we are finding in yes. all the various there's a lot forms. to say but she was she was just very well used and valuable at the time yes Okay, so when she was announced um, as playing Dorothy, the press expressed their concern, wondering if she would be accepted in the role. And this Mm -hmm. is a quote from columnist Paul Harrison. Judy Garland recently was announced for the role of Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. The selection drew a good deal of adverse comment, and as much from Judy Garland fans as from anyone else. She herself seems a little uneasy about it. The Dorothy of L. Frank Baum's stories is much younger, a simple girl. The assumption is that Judy will introduce swing music in Emerald City and will teach the Scarecrow and Tin Man how to do the Big Apple dance. <laughs> Maybe they'll change the title to The Wizard of Jazz. So look at the like the press just jazz. like stirring the pot right there. Uh, the Wizard there. of Jazz. Right. That just cracks me up. I love it. Yeah, that was what she was known for, right, at the time. Yes. There was this prospective cast list from 1938 found in the Freed collection. Ooh. That there was a suggestion for casting Judy Garland as, quote, an orphan in Kansas who sings jazz, end quote. That's the press release. That's there the it press is. release. There what? it is. And Hilarious. just to touch a little bit on um, the on-scene stuff. So when she did get the role, we yeah. talked a little bit about Princess Dorothy, which they would dub the blonde. The blonde, yeah. The sweet, like, damsel in distress version of Dorothy, which really changed her acting. She acted a little bit more mm-hmm. um, coquettish. For sure. And yeah. she didn't have this whole, like, her wholesomeness kind of got erased with the blonde tresses, mm-hmm. but... Judy thought she looked so beautiful, and I understand Jude's. I would be like, look at my flowing long hair. This is great. I love my blonde hair. Like, I was a brunette my whole life, and I dyed my yeah. hair a little bit later in life, and yeah. I love my blonde hair. Like, I don't know when I'm going to go back to my brunette hair. So You're I just, rocking it. I feel Judy in these, yeah. um, in these sentiments. I love just, those photos. She looks 
She looks gorgeous, and she looks like an ingenue, which she wasn't typically cast as. And there is something to just, like, you look in the mirror and you see a princess, you know? Right. And you just feel so good about yourself. So just honoring the blonde wig. Blonde wig moment. would, Would not be. I love that this, the photos exist. Do you know that Bobby Cochet, our girl Bobby, Bobby Cochet, was her physical trainer as well? She Bobby did so much. She was also kind of a spy a little bit from MGM. <laughs> like, she kept right. tabs they on were her. Like, is she eating the proper meals? Yep. She kept her in a vigorous exercise regimen of swimming, tennis, hiking, and badminton. Oh, my gosh. Judy. So they wanted her to, yeah, they wanted her to have an athletic conditioner. So that was Bobby. And they weren't really friends because Bobby was significantly older than her. But Bobby Mm. was also on the 1928 Olympic swim team. Go Bobby. Bobby, what an interesting person. After she worked with Judy, I think through Babes in Arms, she left showbiz and opened a swimming school. (laughs) Very wild. Um, I love it. But isn't that interesting? I thought that was funny that she was also her trainer, but also did all these stand-in moments. (laughs) Totally. For her. Um, oh, my gosh. Keeping eyes on her, though. Yes. Ugh, that gives me the creeps a little yes. bit. Yes. So that's just a little bit of the behind the scenes that was happening um, before yeah. the point when, like, Victor Fleming walks in and the film that we now know and love yes. starts to happen. Yes. Okay. Scarecrow? Scarecrow time, your boyfriend. My boyfriend your is here. Boyfriend. Okay. So, March 1938. Ray Bolger was called into Mervyn Leroy's office and told that he was to play the Tin Woodman. So I guess that was how it worked back then, right? It's like you are on contract here. You know you're going to have some movies. And they were like, hey, you're going to be the Tin Woodman. Right. And, and he like, was you not didn't really stoked. Ad- you didn't really audition either. It's no. like some testing. kind of like a repertory like, yeah, theater just experience. Just like, you're doing this. But there is controversy here um, that... Jay and William point out. Jay That's William. a little unclear. Okay, some other histories of the film will say what we what we just, just said here mm-hmm. with like Ray Bolger being cast as the Tin Man first. Mm-hmm. But he was actually originally selected to play the Scarecrow first <gasps> because the first ever announcement headlined in um, Edwin Schallert's March 7th, 1938 column says Bolger Scarecrow in The Wizard oh. of Oz. Unless that was also, oh. who knows? It could have been a typo of the time. Could have been. Or gossip. Or, yeah, just maybe it wasn't confirmed. Um, But it was published long before the Tin Man role was ever formally filled. Um, It was actually only Garland and Bolger in that announcement. Oh, wow. So he was announced as a scarecrow first. Yes, and then it went back to the Tin Man. And then it was Tin Man. That's what is said here. Because Buddy Epson does have, did have time in rehearsals as a scarecrow. Right. So that also happened. So let's go into this little, like, swap Swaparoo that happened. Okay, so Ray Bolger was not stoked. So once he's the Tin Woodman, he was like, I'm not a tin performer. I'm fluid. Keep in mind, and it's not that he didn't want to be in Wizard of Oz. He, his biggest idol, as we mentioned in some of our 1902 Broadway musical episodes, was Fred Stone, who played the Scarecrow in the original musical. It's deep. Was his idol. It's it's so deep. I didn't know how deep it was. Yeah, it's like hero level he. Yes. Fred Stone, seeing him on stage, changed Changed his life. life. So here's some some words from Ray Bolger. When I was 15 or 16, around 1919, 1920, I saw Fred Stone and Jack-O-Lantern at a theater in Boston. Um, all I remember is that I saw this man save a girl from a fate worse than death. He bounded on a trampoline out of a haystack, looking just like a scarecrow, put his hand on his head and said, just in time, 
I've never forgotten it. That moment opened up a whole new world oh, for this me. This is so good. Up until then, the theater had nothing to do with me. I was going to high school mornings and making a living afternoons. My father was a house painter. He had gotten sick, and his sickness had used up all our money. I was just after survival, making a living for myself. That moment in the theater changed all Isn't of that. Isn't that wild? Oh. It was so huge for him. It's, it's a huge, huge moment. So I love that connection that he was... That was his hero. And so, so he was like, I yeah. must play the Scarecrow. He said, Vaudeville, sign me up. Vaudeville, I'm here. He said, open call, I'm coming. I'm here. He made the jump from Vaudeville to Broadway in 1935. He came to MGM for one picture at $20,000 a week that for feels seven crazy. Weeks. That's a lot of money compared that to what Judy was getting. crazy. Also, he worked with Berlar yes! on Broadway in, the, in this hit show that I need to know. Life begins at 840. Life begins at 840. Why not 835? Not no, yep. mm-hmm. it's just life begins at 8.40. I'm not sure if it's a.m. or p.m. <laughs> we don't know. Not sure if it's Eastern Standard Time. Or we must Pacific. find this show. There's a lot of mystery to this show. I'm upset. But yeah, he got his contract for Scarecrow contract. at 3000 a week. Woo! Hey, Scarecrow. Okay. All right. Tin Cheers. Man Times is tough. Tin Man Times yeah, is very this, tough. This is sad. Okay. This is a lot. So Buddy Epson, which we're going to talk more about. We also may have a special guest coming on to talk more about Buddy Ooh, Epson. Suspense. Because we really want to honor his story, which is also reported pretty... Um, some reports of what happened to Buddy Epson feel very watered down. Mm-hmm. They say allergic reaction. Yes. And others say near-death fatal experience that would have happened to anyone. So it's a little unclear of, like, where the studio was trying to, um, you know, just put things... Sweep things under the rug. rug. Yeah. Um, Because what happened to him was not cool, which we'll talk about more. If it happened now, oh my gosh. Oh my god! This would be really, really bad. Okay, let me come at you with some Tin Man things. Tell us. Okay, so number one, like, they didn't really know what they were going to do with the Tin Mans when Buddy got switched over to Tin Man Land. Mm -hmm. He was an experiment with makeup. So they didn't know, yeah. That starts everything out. <laughs> Journalist at the time, Paul Harrison, who was stirring the pot. Ugh, of Would course. it be better to have the Tin Man, a completely impersonal robot, build as an on-scene Buddy Epson? Or would it be better to have the face of Epson proving the existence of a dancing star inside the shell of L. Frank Baum's woodchopper? What is this statement? I, this question what? is hilarious. That sounds confusing. But Epson was really, really excited to bring his dancing abilities into this role. Um, this is, I mean, this is really sweet of Epson's behind-the-scene um, craftsmanship, assuming that he was made of tin and put together by a plumber. He worked out a step in imitation of the movements of a plumber's pipe wrench in action. So he was Whoa. really dedicated. And just to give a little bit about Buddy Epson, we'll go more into him in detail, but yeah. he was around the MGM lot because mm-hmm. him and his sister Vilma were a dancing act. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were put on contracts, but something they both kind of failed to miss was that MGM could drop either of them at any time. Oh, no. And they dropped Vilma. Um, <gasps> Vilma? And then, of course, we'll get more and more into um, how he got replaced with Jack Haley. We'll let that be a mystery for now. But know that that. what happened to him affected him for the next 20 years of his life from really coming back to his performing career with a 
with a, a stride or a streak involved. I think mm-hmm. he'd make little appearances here and there, but he really pulled away. Yeah. So we'll get more into all that happened with we Bunny Epson. We have his uh, memoir. Yes. And We're like, going to read it. What goes with um, what came with Jack Haley sweeping on in, but Jack yeah. Haley would be the Tin Woodman um, starting, I think, two to three weeks after they officially Not started. Long after, right. Okay, so we have the Cowardly Lion next. Cowardly Lion! Which the actor who portrayed the Cowardly Lion, Burt Lahr, mm-hmm. is quoted as saying, after The Wizard of Oz, I was typecast as a lion, <laughs> and there aren't all that many parts for lions. I love him. He seems like uh, like a trip. Oh. I wish that I could have been friends with also him. Also grumpy but funny, like on yes. set. He seems like an old Broadway guy. I mean, that's exactly what he was. That is what he was. He was such a New Yorker Broadway performer. The vaudevillian hams, those three yes. were together. Yes. So Yip Harbergy. <laughs> Yippee! Yippee! He was <laughs> responsible for Burt Lahr coming into this picture, so... Again, life begins at 840. <laughs> That's back. a big moment. Just name our episode that. Life begins at 840. Life you begins at 840. You can only listen to this at 840, y'all. <laughs> he suggested that Bert um, come on in and and do the Cowardly Lion because mm-hmm. he really believed in his um, comedic, his broad comedic sensibilities, his mm-hmm. sweetness. That he wouldn't be, like, swallowed up by this 70-pound right. costume. He could actually play it. He had, like, a huge stage presence i also just love that he didn't really have an education he left school in the eighth grade and he had never even heard of the wizard of oz so this was a completely new world for him like we're talking a lot about a lot of the creatives and the actors knowing the book judy is was religious with the book she had them on set with her all the time she would knit and read them when she wasn't working love those photos so cute but he really came into this not knowing a dang thing. So mm-hmm. that is a little bit about how Burt Lahr came into the production. I love this quote from his son, uh, John Lahr. Yes. Who has some cool articles that we'll bring up later that I've been reading. Um, he says, It's very important to stress that he was so large a comic figure. I mean, he radiated such energy and size that the camera could only accept it as real if he was an animal and not human. <sighs> right? He's just like this larger-than-life comedic guy who has to play a lion in order to really fully actually exist. he's the only one that i did not see any actor who turned it down mm. before him mm-hmm. i don't think they really knew where to go with that character and i can't see anyone else like playing it yeah as well what yeah, an interesting person yeah shall we get into the wicked witch the wicked witch yes also, Margaret Hamilton. This is where I I had a little moment because there's some question marks around certain people they were considering, but it's only through like memos. And I was like, oh my god, this right. is texting yeah. all the time. Hey guys, what do you think about this? Yeah. So Ed, Edna May Oliver is the first circulated mm-hmm. name to be attached to the Wicked Witch, but Crazy. I don't even know if she knew that. I don't think she did. It was a consideration. These are just kind ideas, like dream casting. Yes. You know. But tell us about sultry Gail Sondergaard. Sultry Gail Sondergaard. <laughs> okay. So they were interested in Edna May Oliver, as you mentioned, but Mervyn Leroy uh, had decided that he wanted a glamorous witch, a fallen woman wearing green eyeshadow and a witch's hat made out of black sequins to be played by Gail Sondergaard. Very much like the 
queen in Snow White. Yes, I feel 100% these photos, it looks like the evil queen from Snow White, for yes. sure. Um, so Mervyn Leroy had directed Gail Sondergaard in 1936, um, which she had won the Academy Award for her role there. And so he was like, oh, I'm amazing. I discovered her. Um, and she had signed a one-year contract at MGM. Um, so she basically, like, collaborated with Mervyn Leroy on the wardrobe. She wanted to feel glamorous. I don't think she wanted to be ugly at all. Like, that was not something she wanted. Um, and so, but basically, eventually, Mervyn came to her and said, hey, everyone else is basically saying that I can't have this beautiful, gorgeous, glamorous witch. And she was like, well, fine. I don't want to be an ugly, hateful witch. So she walked. Yes. And 40 years later, she said she had no regrets. So. Neither did Margaret Hamilton. (laughs) Ta-ta. In comes Margaret Hamilton, who accepted the role of the ugly, hateful witch. And uh, here's one one moment of shade from Ray Bolger. He says, she was not the most beautiful woman in the world. He said that a lot about Although she had a beautiful interior. Ray, (sighs) what are you doing, Ray? I mean, she also embraced her. (laughs) Uh, Okay, I'm going to just say it. I really get her because this is, I feel like, how I have been treated Mm. as, like, a comedic woman. Mm. So I really get her. And she she chose to, like, embrace it, which Mm. means... I will hurt myself and self-deprecate mm-hmm. and make it look like I'm laughing first before anyone else can. And also, like, wow. she just kind of let emotion be taken out of prettier meaning anything mm-hmm. better. I think she did. Like, there's, like, a sensibility about her. Kind of practical. Yes. Yeah. A very practical sensibility about her. I mean. Wow. I Her backstory, which I can't wait until we get into, like, her yeah. life, is pretty sweet. Um, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, she had, she's also in this realm, kind of like Algene is in as well, of just like women's looks. If you're going to, if I'm going to knock my looks, I'm going to do it with humor. Um, I can't take it personally. Right. If I want to get what I want. I mean, I will say this now because I think it's too funny. She had a show later on in life called Aprons I Have Worn. (laughs) Of all the like. She sounds amazing. That she's played. Yeah, she took everything with humor. But did you know? By 1938, Margaret Hamilton had already played the witch. I love it. Twice I love for the it. Junior League in Cleveland. Listen, when I say oh. I would be vice president of a Junior League you any day. You would be day, the most incredible I vice would president. I would be vice president of a Junior League any day. I love it. She was only 36 in 1938. Yeah, she this was pretty, crazy. she was relatively young. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it's good to start noting, though, how she talked about her appearance, how other right. people talked about her appearance. Right. Um, let's talk, though, about her screen test, because she's, like, one of the only ones who had, like, an audition. Right. Because when, like, they were on the fence with what to do with Gail, um, she thought she lost the part, but her agent was, like, like, nothing is over. Right. Don't leave the papers. This agent was great, because he also held out when she was, like, no, just take the deal. He held out to get, like, a certain week number secure. I think Go it was agent. Six weeks, Thank you. When she ended up working for like four months and so that right. even mattered. Because of, but they didn't we'll see. Yeah, they mm-hmm. didn't want to pay her the the two they only wanted to pay her two weeks of one, at one thousand. Wild. And like her whole thing Wild. with why she picked one thousand as being like a really a number she knew she could live off of. It wasn't too much, it wasn't too little because she had to be practical of a woman of what she looked like at that time. Like that's so fascinating. There's She's a lot going on. So there. fascinating. But anyways, her screen test, this yes. is how she describes it. <laughs> I think I had them put 
big, heavy eyebrows on and rings under my eyes and lines on my face. In those days, they had to put the lines in. Now I take them out. <laughs> then I pick the oldest, crummiest looking clothes I could find, some dirty <laughs> things that sort of hung on me like a mothered Hubbard. And then a little shawl. <laughs> Mother Hubbard must Mother have been Hubbard. popular at the time. There was no witch's hat, and I really looked more like an old hag. And I cackled and screamed and said a few lines from the script. I mean, she sounded like she put so much effort. She, cra- she crushed it. Into this audition. But Apparently she did well. She got the job. Yeah. Marvin Leroy pulled her aside at a baseball game. <laughs> or no, excuse me, at a football game. <laughs> she was out with her agent and I think his wife. And she said a bow. <laughs> a bow. Come on, bow. And that's how yeah. she found out. Yeah. And she was so freaked out heck? that her agent was going to mess everything up, but he did not. Wow. Okay, so just to, to wrap Margaret Hamilton up with how she made peace with her lack of physical beauty, and I'm putting that in quotes because cool. I yeah. love her face. Right. I'm glad I'm homely. My face has given me lots of work. During one of her other films, while she was on set, she said, I think it was during Parade, this film Parade, they put a sign on my chair that said, Mag the Hag. Why, I just loved it. I'm not sensitive about my looks. And she also talks about how her father wanted to get take her to a plastic surgeon when she was younger, get her nose altered, but she refused. She said, it's mine, and I wanted to keep it. So there's pride in what she looks like, but also a, mm. I'm homely, that's okay. Wow. It's very interesting. She's kind of an enigma of that time because she really found a power in it. Mm -hmm. But it also makes me sad in the words she used to describe herself. But also she owned those words. So there is a beauty to that, too. There is a power to that. This is an interesting... She puts, I think, women in an interesting intersection to observe of a woman in the 1930s maneuvering through Hollywood. Mm -hmm. It's just so interesting to observe how she did that because I do feel like she was very smart um, and how she negotiated, like, beyond the yeah. other women were of the time. But Much she also practical. had, like, a place that she knew she fit, but also, like, made the most of that place. Right. I mean, contrasting her to Gail Sondergaard, who was like, oh, my gosh, I'm too beautiful for that role. She's like, I want to be known for you this. Know? And, and Gail Margaret had, Hamilton was like, um, yeah, I'll take that role. Gail had Oscars and stuff, too, right. so it was a little bit different. And now Margaret, I mean, she got the last laugh. For sure. A hundred. And let's go to her her sister. Her sister. Okay, y'all, my favorite. I know, you love Billy. I love Glinda. You love I Billy love Burke. I love Billy Burke. Like, I want to read her memoir. Like, what? who is this woman? But, I'm so confused. Do you know what the text messages said? The memos? What? Fanny Bryce maybe could have been Fanny, Fanny Bryce. Fanny Bryce could have been involved. Other choices were Fanny Bryce. Constant... Constance Collier, Grace Fields, Una Merkel, Edna May Oliver, Helen Troy, all of these people. But then apparently it was pretty unanimous. They said, let's all let's have Billy Burke. There was no contest. They thought that Burke's um, disposition and lightness yeah. would play well against Margaret Hamilton. She would lighten the menace as treating it as just an annoyance, which she totally does. She's like, you know, fiddle dee dee, yeah. get away from here. Um she was born Mary William Ethelbert Appleton Burke. Nice name. Mary William Ethelbert <laughs> Appleton Burke. Daughter of a Barnum and Bailey circus clown. What? What? Um, she married Florence Ziegfeld in 1914 and had turned down a $10,000 a week offer from the movies in 1915 in order to stay married to him. Yeah. Um, so she was obviously an NY, New York City Broadway lady. Uh, one of the more famous Ziegfeld ladies. Margaret Hamilton has this memory from Al Jean's book 
of uh, they basically one day she left uh, Billy Burke left the set uh, when she was waiting for a costume test. And when they were finally ready for her, no one could find her. Eventually, up to the door of the set came a limousine and out stepped the fairy lady. And the first assistant director said, Miss Burke, where have you been? It's been expensive and costly. Where have you been? Why are you late? Margaret Hamilton describes Billy's blue eyes filling with tears and the tears were dropping down her cheeks. And Billy said, you're, you're browbeating me. She got what she wanted. Like, I feel like she may have been a little bit of a Karen. <laughs> I mean, she also, I think, was mysterious, and yeah, you don't hear stories about her. No, she, she was only in the beginning and the end. Right, so that's also true. Like, she wasn't around the filming process as much as these other characters that we're right. talking about were. So she had a princess drag. But we don't really hear stories no. about her, her involvement, her relationships. Like Drama. we know, like Judy felt really comfortable with Margaret Hamilton, but there's not really much said about Billy right. Burke. So there's that. But she, after Flo died, my friend Flo, <laughs> she made it her career to reinvent herself, or she made it her wow. mission to reinvent herself as this perpetually befuddled woman who was put in the unique situations in these films, and she kind of had a, a career revival wow. later. Yeah, she I mean, was around for a while. She was really known for Dinner at Eight. That was a film that she mm-hmm. got great reviews for. So that's a little bit about uh, Billy Burke, who was 54, walking into that <sighs> I remember film. When, when I learned that, I was like, what? Wow. Okay. Crazy. We have a couple more. A couple more, almost there. Wizard of Oz is a little complicated. Like, the the casting of this titular character. Yeah. yeah. Initially, Harburg and uh, Mervyn Leroy wanted Edwin, who was the star of Hooray for What. He was ideal, but he said no. I think he just flat out said no. Mm-hmm. And then they wanted W.C. Fields, who mm-hmm. was a big, another, like, Burt esque star, but bigger than Burt Lahr. He yes. transcended Broadway and Hollywood. Also, just a random fact, in 1923, he was the star of a Broadway musical called Poppy, where he played a colorful small-time con man. So, feels very Wizard <laughs> of Oz. That feels right. <laughs> um, but he also, at the time of Wizard of Oz, was declining in health. He Aww. was demanding more money, and they just weren't willing to negotiate with him. So, mm-hmm. he was not in a great place in his life mm-hmm. when all of this was going down. Frank Morgan was a huge MGM guy. He made 68 films at MGM between 1933 and 1949. That's so many. Yes, and he apparently begged for the role like he really wanted to play this part when there was Mm -hmm. all this discrepancy happen happening with wc field's salary and schedule wow he was pretty known too he was an academy award nominee Mm -hmm. i love that his um real name was francis philip wepperman That's a great name. But he was a veteran of vaudeville, yes, like you yeah, said. Um, right. And he was in all these films until he died in 1949. Yeah. Both him and Jack Haley talk about portraying bewildered milk toast personas, <laughs> like as like things they did really well, which that's really funny that that's how they saw themselves. Right. Okay, so according to screenwriter Noel Langley, Frank Morgan was not even a third choice for the role. This is where he begged for it came from. He said, let me go onto a stage and do an ad lib test. And he did all the scenes as they were in the script. And he knew the script already. He knew it backward. Did it all by himself with nobody there but himself and an assistant director. (laughs) And Harburg and Arlen and Freed and and Noel watched this test afterwards. And 
they said it was marvelous and he was as funny as Buster Keaton. So that's yes, what brought him this get role. It, Frank Morgan. So he really had a fight for it, which that's interesting. I love that, that he like really cared. Yeah. And he would have unfortunately be one of the first deaths too within the actors. Right. He died in 1949. So he would never see the success of this, which is right. pretty sad. He was pretty young. He was 59. Yeah. Died in his sleep. Yeah. Toto? Terry, or shall we say Terry? Terry, Terry, who eventually was renamed Toto. Keep that in mind. Apparently, this took the longest amount of time, at least according to Al Jean. The property department was handed a copy of the original book and was told to find a dog that looked just like the dog in WW Denzel. They did a good job. Drawings. I think they did a perfect job. Um,. So there were these, like, famous Hollywood animal trainers, which still, that's pretty much how it is today. Um, So Carl Spitz um, basically was famous for Buck, a St. Bernard. He had trained to star with Clark Gable and Loretta Young in Call of the Wild. Yeah, he was a dog trainer. Dog trainer. Carl Spitz had acquired Terry, the female Carn Terrier who would play Toto in The Wizard of Oz for about four years before the picture was actually made. Apparently, a woman had just approached Carl and was like, hey, I have a dog. Will you train it for me? She was a breeder. And apparently, Terry was really, really shy. And um, eventually, uh, she, she basically was like, I will pay you and I'll come pick up the dog. It took Carl seven weeks for him to train Terry. And when the lady came back, she tried to, like, basically be like, oh, I'm not paying you that much. Crazy. And Carl was like... You don't bring me the money, you don't get the dog. Eight days later, she came back, and she was like, here's a car? I'm confused by the story. I'm so confused. Eight days later, she came and said, here's a car. I took one look at the car she brought, and I said, lady, I'm not the best mechanic, but I know enough I'd have to pay 10 bucks to tow it to the wrecking yard. So she took the car away and never came back for the dog. Weird story. Like, just who knows though? Strange. Like, I I sense a little publicity. <laughs> Is this a publicity sprinkled stunt? magic in there or it's something? It's silly. Because even so, what you said too, like they put in the papers after a search that covered right. all parts of the country, testing right. all hundreds of dog actors. <laughs> like all of that language was so hyped and heightened. Carl was probably like, "Listen to this crazy story," and they were like, "Oh, we love it." Yeah, let's yeah. jot it down. So and silly. Make it sensational. So that was all surrounding Toto's story of coming into this, but Toto, as we will talk about more and more, is a scene-stealing legend. I did love Toto's work in Bright Eyes starring Shirley Temple, must say. He wasn't, yeah, she was with Shirley Temple. Oh, she, yes. She she had a career before before Wizard of Oz. Okay, last but not least, and we know there's some other bit roles that will get mentioned as we go along, like we'll talk about Aunt Em and Uncle Henry yeah. and the Winky Guard. We'll talk about them when their yeah. time comes. Right. But let's acknowledge the Munchkins. The Munchkins. I first want to point out that in the language that is used pretty much throughout the history books, the word midget is used mm-hmm. a lot. Mm-hmm. Even the name of the agency that um, recruited a lot of the Munchkins who would be cast, it was called the Singer Midgets. So we are going to abolish the word midget moving forward, but mm-hmm. just acknowledging the history. Also, because the little people of America's website has a statement that we're going to honor 
that says the Little People of America, the world's oldest and largest dwarfism support organization and an international membership-based organization for people with dwarfism and their families, advocates to abolish the use of the word midget. The word midget was never coined as the official term to identify people with dwarfism, Mm. but was created as a label used to refer to people of short stature who were on public display for curiosity and sport. Yeah. Today, the word midget is considered a derogatory slur. The dwarfism community has voiced that they prefer to be referred to as dwarfs, little people, people of short stature or having dwarfism, or simply and most preferably by their given name. I think that's a beautiful ask and definitely should be respected. Yes, thank you so much for presencing that. We'll get into it. Yeah, they're credited as the Munchkins. That's about it. We'll, We'll get into it. I mean, they... Yeah, they were organized by Leo Singer. from 18, He lived from 1877 to 1951. At its largest, Singer's troop had 30 members, but by 1938, the total had dwindled to 18. Yeah, apparently Leo Singer toured the nation mm-hmm. on, with two buses and returned Crazy. to Hollywood with little people four to a seat. That was in wow. the press publicity on this. Um mm-hmm. His total was 124 performers. Yes, and here's another little-known fact that I did not know. Mervyn Leroy at first considered casting children, most of whom could be Mm. readily recruited from local dance schools, such as the Meglin Studios, which was very popular. One account suggested that Leroy would be assigning munchkin parts to MGM child stars like Mm -hmm. Mickey Rooney and Freddie (laughs) Bartholomew. Oh, gosh. But the demands and restrictions of casting, rehearsing, and filming that many minors made the notion infeasible. Wow. So, yeah, there was a nationwide call that was put out through booking agents, carnival and circus owners, and newspapers for perfectly proportioned little people. Mm. Um, Yes. So that's... Just a little bit about the Munchkins to start, which we'll get. We I can't will get, wait into to get into it. Into it I mean, the way that they describe it, I'm like, did he just drive the buses and people? And he was like, get on the bus, and they just left their home. And I came. don't know. You know the way they describe it. It's it wild. sounds very much like yeah, you surrender your just life. Like, and come just on. Go. All oh right. My gosh, I so think that's it. The filming period was October 12, <gasps> 1938, through March 16, 1939. We have made it to the end of kind of just setting the scene, which we feel crazy There's at the end of. There's a lot. There's a lot. And it's here. It's like learning a whole new world. Like having like, it just felt like a college it's a course. History. It's totally a history. This is an AP test. Yes. And to understand <laughs> it, you have to, I think, witness it in all your sense, through all your senses in a yeah. way. Like watch watch documentaries, listen to interviews, read things. And also just because the press was so sensational at the time, it's hard to believe. (laughs) What exactly? What am I saying? It still is. It still is, yeah. It's hard to believe some of these things too. Like what is fact and what is fiction. What was exaggerated. I don't know. But we've made it to the end. And we're going to start next week. We'll be right in the opening scenes of Kansas. We're going to break that down into two episodes for you because I'm sure there'll be a lot to say. We'll talk more about Judy as well and for the sure. origin of Somewhere Over the Rainbow oh when they're coming up. Yeah. Yes. Very excited. Thanks for sticking with us through this. I mean, I'm really, I'm so grateful that we got to dive into a little more of setting the scene, setting the stage. And yeah, it will just continue through our journey with this. So... Thanks, y'all. Toodaloo.
Thank you so much for listening to Down the Yellow Brick Pod. If you are feeling frisky with your fingertips, scroll on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a glowing rate and review. Each person who leaves us a review will be entered to win our end-of-the-season Oz giveaways, Mm. including a gift basket of musical adaptation goods, which, trust me, you aren't going to want to miss. All previous reviews will also be considered in our entries. We see you. Until next time, catch us at Down the Yellow Brick Pod in our Technicolor scrapbook on IG and partying on our Patreon. Gratitude to our patrons of present and future for making more magic possible. Let's escape to Oz soon, okay? TTYL. Okay, hold on, hold on. Need to breathe. Your note would have been like. <laughs> okay, Tara, breathe lower. Okay. That's okay, great. Okay. I love it.